Lord. Uh, Amen. It's good to be with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor Grant, for bombing so I don't have to. I really appreciate that. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Lord. Double it, Lord. Uh, well, it's good to be with you uh, this morning. Our text comes from the book of Second Chronicles. I'm actually going to pull a, a quick one on the tech team. I, I did a horrible guest preaching job here where I didn't even look at the service order until about two minutes ago. So uh, I'm going to be preaching through all of chapter 29. So uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 29. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us, which means you also can stay seated. Because I'm in charge today, and we're going to sit down. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he ruled for 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah. She was Zechariah's daughter. He did what was right in the Lord's eyes, just as his ancestor David had done. In the very first year of his rule, during the first month, Hezekiah reopened the door of the Lord's temple, having repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and Levites and assembled them in the eastern square. Listen to me, you Levites, he said. Make yourselves holy so you can make holy the temple of the Lord God of your ancestors by removing from the sanctuary any impure thing. Our ancestors were unfaithful and did what was evil in the Lord our God's eyes. They abandoned him. They ignored the Lord's dwelling and they defied him. They even closed the door of the entrance hall, snuffed out the lamps, and stopped burning incense and offering entirely burned offerings in the sanctuary of the God of Israel. This angered the Lord so much that he made Judah and Jerusalem an object of terror and horror, something people hiss at, as you can see with your own eyes. That's why our ancestors died violent deaths while our sons, daughters, and wives were taken captive. But now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, Israel's God, so God will no longer be angry with us. Don't be careless, my sons. The Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence to serve him so that you can be his servants and burn incense to him. Then the following Levites got up from the descendants of the Kohathites, Mahath, Amasi's son, and Joel, Azariah's son, from the descendants of Merari, Kish, Abdi's son, and Azariah, and blah, 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 a bunch of sons. Uh, and these men, all those sons, gathered their relatives, made themselves holy, and went in to purify the Lord's temple by obeying the king's command. They brought, out the court, they brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple all the impurities they discovered inside. Then the Levites took them out to the Kidron Valley. They began to make things holy on the first day of the first month. On the eighth day of the month, they re- reached the Lord's entrance hall. They made holy the Lord's temple for eight days, finishing on the 16th day of the first month. Then they went before King Hezekiah. We have purified the Lord's entire temple, they said, and the altar for the entirely burned offering together with all its equipment and the table for the stacks of bread together with all its equipment. We have also restored and made holy all the items King Ahaz threw out during his rule in his unfaithfulness. They are now before the Lord's altar. Early the next morning, Hezekiah gathered the city leaders and went to the Lord's temple. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, along with seven male goats for a purification offering on behalf of the kingdom, the sanctuary, and Judah. Hezekiah ordered the priests, Aaron's sons, to offer them up to the Lord's altar. When they slaughtered the bulls, the priests took the blood and splashed it against the altar. Next, they slaughtered the rams and splashed their blood against the altar. And then they slaughtered the lambs and splashed their blood against the altar. Finally, they brought the goats for purification offering before the king and the assembly. After laying their hands on them, the priests slaughtered them and smeared the blood on the altar as a purification offering to take away the sin of all Israel. Because the king had specifically ordered that the entirely burned sacrifice and the purification offering should be on behalf of all Israel. 
Hezekiah had the Levites stand in the Lord's temple with cymbals, harps, and zithers, just as the Lord had ordered through David, the king's seer Gad, and the prophet Nathan. While the Levites took their place holding David's instruments and the priests their trumpets, Hezekiah ordered the entirely burned offering to be offered up on the altar. As they began to offer the entirely burned offering, the Lord's song also began, accompanied by the trumpets and the other instruments. The whole congregation worshiped with the singing choirs and the blaring trumpets until the end of the entirely burned offering. After the entirely burned offering was complete, the king and all who were with him bowed down in worship. Then King Hezekiah and the leaders ordered the Levites to praise the Lord by using the words of David and the seer Asaph. They did so joyously, then they bowed down in worship too. Now that you have dedicated yourselves to the Lord, King Hezekiah told them, bring sacrifice, uh, sacrificial thank offerings to the Lord's temple. So the assembly brought sacrificial thank offerings, with some people volunteering to provide entirely burned offerings. All in all, the congregation brought 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs as entirely burned offerings for the Lord, as well as 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep as holy offerings. Unfortunately, there weren't enough priests to skin all these entirely burned offerings. So their relatives, the Levites, who had been more conscientious about preparing themselves than the priests, stepped in and helped them until the work was done, where additional priests had made themselves holy. In addition to the wealth of the entirely burned offerings, there was a, the fat of the well-being sacrifices and drink offerings accompanying the entirely burned offerings. In this way, the service of the Lord's temple was restored, and Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had done for them since it had happened so quickly. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have to confess something to you this morning. Uh, I am a little frustrated with my father. You see, uh, I was given this text by my father for the sake of his class, as he's mentioned. Um, and one, Second Chronicles not a very flashy text, not super exciting. I just read the entire chapter to you. Not very exciting. We all get it. Um, but also, this whole text is about Hezekiah, this young ruler in the first month of his kingship, coming in, kicking down the doors, and cleansing all of the sin of his forefathers. Looking at what his dad, the legacy his father had left him, and saying... <laughs> The sin here is so great, we ran out of priests. We had to gather up all the Levites, even, to take care of this sin. That's how much sin our ancestors had committed. And as I prepared for this sermon over the last couple of weeks, I was fully prepared to come in here and kick the doors down. There's a movie uh, that my, my dad loves to talk about. Uh, it's kind of a buddy cop movie for pastors called Mass Appeal, where there's this, this older priest who has kind of gone soft. He just keeps telling the people what they want to hear, who gets partnered up with this young, really problematic priest. And, and he walks the young priest through his first sermon to the congregation and tries to tell him to uh, preach on this illustration of a jelly donut, because who doesn't love jelly donuts? And the young priest is like, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. And he gets up there in the first thing uh, to this older Catholic congregation and starts by saying, God is not impressed with your pearls or your blue hair. And, <laughs> and a part of me wanted to come in this morning and, and kick down the doors and say, God is not impressed with your new carpet uh, or your black wall, your LED screen, um, but cares about justice and all those things. Uh, but, I, but I actually think a film that more accurately describes what's happening in 2 Chronicles 29 
1993 classic, straight to VHS, featuring a young Rob Schneider, a movie probably just me and my brother have seen in this room, and that is Surf Ninjas. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Surf Ninjas is a story of these two children who uh, are royalty in a South Pacific island kingdom. And uh, this war breaks out, and they're taken from their home, and they're taken to Santa Monica, California. And they're raised as kind of beach bum surf kids uh, with the help of a young Rob Schneider who eats all of their eggs. It's a weird movie. But, um, but the, whole, the whole point of this film is then they have to go back and restore their kingdom. Uh, these two young leaders have to go lead a people kind of out of this post-exilic journey. They have to restore and rebuild and reconcile all the damage that is done with their kingdom. They have to look at trees and not see trees, but see surfboards, and they have to teach the nation to surf. It's a beautiful film about the power of humanity. Um, you, should, you should go check it out. Uh, if there's a, you know, probably a VHS at the Nampa Public Library, you should go uh, rent it. Pretty good. Um, but yeah, I think this movie actually, or this, this scripture is actually a lot more like Surf Ninjas than it is uh, Mass Appeal. I think what the chronicler is trying to tell us is not so much, um, woe to you forefathers and ancestors, for your sin is so great. But instead, uh, what the chronicler is trying to show us, um, this question that has kind of stayed in my mind over the last couple of weeks is, uh, why is this Hezekiah's first act as king? You see, the, the chronicler, uh, as my dad kind of mentioned last week, he's not so worried about the exact details of the history of these accounts. Uh, he leaves out all of the bad parts, or the fun parts, if you're in Sunday school in the college group class. Um, he doesn't talk about David's adultery. He doesn't talk about Solomon's exploitation of the land and its people. Uh, but instead, the chronicler sets up David as this kind of idyllic king. Uh, the golden age of Israel happens under David and Solomon. And then for every king that follows, the chronicler begins by saying either this king followed after God's own heart like his ancestor David, or this king did not follow after God's own heart unlike his ancestor David. And so in the first few verses, we get that Hezekiah did follow after God's own heart like his ancestor David, which should be a symbol in our mind to say immediately, ding, 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 Hezekiah, he's a good king. This is going to be a good story. Ahaz, however, Hezekiah's dad, is markedly not a good king. Um, as the text mentions, not only is Ahaz full of idolatry and some of those other things, but the doors to the temple were sealed shut. All of the wealth of the temple was pawned off to other places. Um, Ahaz was a king in the sense that we like to think of them in history books. He was making deals. He was having military conquests. He was creating alliances and treaties and all of these things. And the chronicler wants us to know, one, Ahaz is a bad king and Hezekiah is a good king. And so this question has continued to bug me over the last few weeks, which is why, if you're Hezekiah and you've been handed this legacy of a, a father and king who not only is like disobedient to God, but shuts the doors of the temple, leads a whole nation astray from the God that they serve, why is the first thing you're going to do, there's enemies at the door, the economy is in ruin, but the first thing you're going to do is gather a bunch of people 
and a whole wealth of animals and spend over a week purifying the temple. You see, there's no real political strategy here. The temple is not a great fortification if their enemies surround them. You don't make money going to the temple. There is no benefit in the world of kingship for the purification of the temple, and yet we see that's Hezekiah's first act. It would seem left with a legacy of grasping at power that perhaps changing some tax laws, maybe conscripting some more labor, starting a military campaign, any number of things would make more sense for the first month of your kingship, but instead we see this 25-year-old gather all the people together and atone not for the sins of his father, not for his own sins, but as is pointed out in the text, for the sins of the entire nation. So what do we do with that? Clearly the chronicler wants us to know Hezekiah is a good king, and in the same sense, uh, this book is written uh, in a post-exilic period, so you know, my dad did the whole history thing, like if we go out here and then we do this and then we do this, and he made the camera people really upset. Um, What do we do with this? The chronicler wants us to know Hezekiah is a good king, and as a good king, we should be emulating what, he, what he's doing. The chronicler writes these two books, First and Second Chronicles, not as a prophetic word against the kingship of Israel, but instead as a blueprint for how God's people are supposed to live in this reclaimed kingdom. Amen. And so if you think about the legacy that Hezekiah is leaving his people, the chronicler wants us to know there's something special about beginning the work in the temple. You see, Israel's entire history was meant to be without a king. If you remember in First and Second Samuel, there's this whole controversy of we've come out of Judges, we had all these crazy people leading Israel, that wasn't seeming to work too well. Uh, and the people decide, we want to be like everybody else, we want a king. And Samuel's like, I'm not sure you want a king, here's all the things they do. And they're like, no, we want a king. And then they get a king, and he does all the things Samuel told him that they would do. And then the rest of Israel's history is God trying to work in and through this kingship partnership. And sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't go well. But I think the best kings, what the chronicler is trying to tell us, is not only uh, when he compares them to David, it's not just that they're like David because they're strong, or they can play the harp really well, or any of those kinds of things. But no, they're, they're, they're like David because they follow after God's own heart. If I could put my own kind of message paraphrase on that this morning, I would say these kings are good because they get out of God's way. The thing that marks a good king for the history of Israel is not their military prowess, not their political acumen, but their ability to humble themselves and allow God to be the true king over Israel. This is what Hezekiah gets right about being the king over God's people. He recognizes that there is nothing in his own power that he can do to restore to reconcile or rebuild God's kingdom. Because after all, he recognizes that Israel was not David's kingdom, it wasn't Solomon's kingdom, it certainly wasn't Ahaz's kingdom, and now it's not Hezekiah's kingdom, but it is the Lord's. 
It's not Hezekiah's people. It's the Lord's people. And it's not just the sins of David or Solomon or Ahaz or Hezekiah that need to be atoned for, but all of God's people need to atone for their sin. And there's this second kind of rub of the story, if you will, this second question uh, that stuck out in my mind. So we, we have this king who his first action is to cleanse the temple. And it takes so much cleansing that they run out of priests. They have to gather up all the Levites. They end up, I mean, blood everywhere. It's crazy. Uh But, But here's the thing that bothered me as I read this text. As was mentioned last week, Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible sits at the very end. It sets us up for this expectation of the future. It's kind of this whole uh, chronological history of all the kings of Israel with this note kind of left unsaid that one day a new king will come, a new David will emerge, and he will restore God's people to their rightful place in the land. And so this second kind of feeling I have from this text is Hezekiah is this great king. That's great. He restores the temple. That's awesome. We love it. But we, with people with both halves of this book, we know the rest of Israel's history. Hezekiah's great. He purifies the temple. That's awesome. But in a handful of centuries, some new empires are going to rise up. And they're not only going to bar the doors to the temple, they're going to burn it down. He's a great king. That's awesome. He doesn't usher God's people into this resurrected, reconciled life. He dies. All those Levites and priests that helped him purify the temple, they pass away as well. And so, so part of me wrestled these last couple of weeks with what do we do with knowing Hezekiah is this great king. That's awesome. He does this great thing. That's awesome. But it doesn't change the ultimate history of God's people. And yet, as we know, there is a new king who has come. We know where this story is headed. And although Hezekiah might have gotten out of God's way this time, it didn't restore God's kingdom on this earth, not in the way the Israelites were expecting. But the chronicler knows this too. You've got to remember, the chronicler is writing all this stuff looking back at the past. He knows or she knows where this story is headed. The Chronicle knows, and the Israelites know, and we know that there is a new king who is coming who will restore that kingdom. Hezekiah offered sacrifices on behalf of the people's sins. But one day a king will come who will sacrifice himself for the sins of all the people. Hezekiah cleansed the temple But one day a king is coming who will cleanse the world. Hezekiah gathered all the priests and Levites to himself to partner in this cleansing work. But one day a king is coming who will gather all of creation together to fulfill this reconciling act. We know his name. It's the name above every name, the name of Jesus Christ. And Christ has reconciled us to God's self in the ultimate act of redeeming love. He laid down his life for those he loved. And 
when I was a, a child, I used to think of that laying down his life when Christ calls us to lay down our lives for the sake of his kingdom, to take up our cross and follow him, I always thought that meant a physical death like the Lord had died. And I would look for, you know, read those stories of missionaries who would risk their lives for the sake of the gospel, and that's all beautiful and amazing. But I think for most of us, that call to take up your cross and follow Christ will never result in physical harm. But instead, I think like Hezekiah, the call to lay down your life is the call to recognize that you are not the king of this kingdom. Hezekiah recognizes that there's a lot going wrong in the world. His economy is in turmoil. His kingdom is in shambles. There's wars and rumors of wars. And in the midst of all of that, he recognizes this one truth. Apart from God, apart from Yahweh, he can do nothing. So he invites all of Israel to come together and to reopen the temple, to restore the one place where Israel knows they can commune with the one and holy God. Because there is no kingly act Hezekiah can do that can restore this nation, this people. But it is only God in his power and his glory who can do this. And so I was thinking these past weeks, Hezekiah was 25, I'm 26. Hezekiah's dad was a king. Someone told me recently that I'm part of the Nazarene cartel. Come on, come on. And as, as my generation and the generation below me start to take power in the church, start to take on leadership in the church, I think we're going to have a Hezekiah decision to make. Here's where I'm going to get a little kick the doors down. I think for a long time, the church, especially in North America, has not acted like Hezekiah. As new generations and leaders have come to power and we look to expand God's kingdom here on earth, we look to make heaven on earth, we've started with, well, if we could just get the right people in leadership, well, if we could just fix the economy, well, if we could just wear t-shirts when we preach, if we could put the drums in the sanctuary, if we could do any number of things, then God's glory would finally be revealed in his church. We're just missing that right key element, that little extra flavor for the glory of the Lord to break out in this place. But here is the truth. As all of our generations have come into leadership, we have missed one crucial fact. And that is that we can do nothing, nothing, apart from the power and communion with the Lord God. So when I was uh, 19, it was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, uh, my freshman year I went to Trevecca Nazarene University in Nashville. My parents were living in Pasadena, California. I wanted to get away. 
went to Nashville, it was great, realized the South's a little different. Uh, and so I decided to come home, transfer to Point Loma, uh, and that same summer, my parents decided they would move somewhere real different, Nampa, Idaho. And so uh, it's fine. I don't feel like, uh, you know, it was a me thing. It's not like I moved home and then they left, which they did, but uh, uh, it's not a thing. Um, but I spent that last summer in Pasadena. It's the last time I've, I, I lived in Pasadena. Uh, and I remember going to uh, Fuller Seminary's bookstore. They were having a really great sale. And I was like, I love a good sale. Uh, and I had just taken a, a biblical exegesis class at Trevecca, and I was getting fired up about all kinds of things, um, starting to do some work in social justice in some of these areas. And, and I was just looking for some resources that would kind of light that fire under me. And I, I walked through uh, the halls of, of archives, Fuller Seminary's bookstore, and I found this little book. Uh, it's called Speaking the Truth. And that's, I mean, you want to light a fire, that's a good title for a book right there, Speak the Truth. Uh, it's written by a man named James Cone, who's a black liberation theologian. So I was getting excited because I had some things to do one of these at. And I thought this is going to be the perfect resource for me, this black liberation theologian. God is on the side of the oppressed and the poor. And we, if, if we're not partnering with the oppressed, then we're missing out on what God's doing. And I was like, yes. Um, and, and I got to read in this book. And I, I want to, I want to read, read a passage from it this morning. But in the first chapter of the book, instead of condemning the world, instead of saying, how dare we sit in our places of power and privilege, if we could just change the right laws, get the right leadership in place, do some economic revival, some of these things, that would make the kingdom of God. Instead, what I read has changed the way I viewed church forever. James Cone starts this book by talking about the power of the black church experience. And if you've never been to a black church, there's four and a half hours of power in there. I mean, I hope they make it to the Super Bowl today. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Because uh, it's a party. And, and he's giving this lecture and someone asks him a question about, uh, this is in the 60s, someone asks him a question, Dr. Cohn, in the midst of all the racial injustice, in the midst of the persecution and prosecution of oppressed people in the world, how do you remain hopeful and joyful in your church services? And he basically says this. He says, you see, the black church, we don't have time to talk about the theology of heaven. We don't have time to, to sit around and wonder about, are we going to be wearing robes? Are we going to wear togas? Are we going to be married to each other when we get up there? Are we going to be in clouds? Do they have McDonald's in heaven? None of those questions matter to the black church because they don't have time for that. Instead, the only thing they have time for is to have a lived, embodied heaven in the sanctuary of their church services. Let me read you these words. He says, Black worship is truthful because the Spirit's presence authenticates their experience of freedom by empowering them with courage and strength to bear witness in their present experience. What they know is coming in God's own eschatological future. The black church congregation is an eschatological community that lives as if the end of time were already at hand. He says the Holy Spirit's presence with the people is a liberating experience. Black people who have been humiliated and oppressed by structures of white society six days of the week gather together each Sunday morning in order to experience another definition of their humanity. 
The transition from Saturday to Sunday is not just a chronological change from the seventh to the first day of the week. It is rather a rupture in time, a kairos event which produces a radical transformation in the people's identity. The janitor becomes the chairperson of the deacon board. The maid becomes the president of stewardess board number one. Everyone in the church becomes Mr. and Mrs. or brother and sister. The last becomes first, making a radical change in the perception of oneself and one's calling in society. Everybody becomes somebody. And one can see the people's recognition of their newfound identity by the way they walk and talk and carry themselves. They walk with a rhythm of an assurance that they know where they are going. And they talk as if they know the truth about which they speak. It is this experience of being radically transformed by the power of the Spirit which defines the primary style of black worship. Liberation for the black church is no longer a future event, but a present happening in the worship itself. So when we think of what does it mean for us to live into the legacy handed to us by Hezekiah? Here's what I think. The space we gather in matters. Not the building per se, not the lights or the songs we sing or even who preaches. We've got too many preachers in this church. Who knows who's up any of these Sundays? But the space that we gather in matters because we come together at 1045, for some of us 1055 on a Sunday morning, <laughs> not to be reminded of the sins of our forefathers, not to be reminded of the work that is still yet to be done, although that is good and there's a place and a purpose for that, but instead we gather together to be reminded that the King who has come the king who has come to establish his kingdom in the world, he's already done it. Amen. And that the resurrected life that Christ calls us to participate in is not a, a future that we have to await, but it is a present reality which we need to embody. Amen. In the words of Dr. Cohn, we need to stop talking about heaven and we need to start being about heaven where everybody is a somebody. Amen. Let's pray this morning. God, I thank you. I thank you for the ways in which you are continuing to remind us of who we are. God, I thank you for your body, the church, and its purpose in this world, which is to be a foretaste of that coming kingdom here in the day, uh, here in the now. God, as we continue to worship you this morning, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us? Would you give us the faith and the courage to follow you wherever you're calling us? For God, we offer all that we have and all that we are at your feet. We lay our own life down before you, Lord, and ask that you would use it for the sake of your kingdom 
and that you would mold us and shape us into the people that you've created and called us to be. And God, we cling to the hope. We cling to the hope that we find in Scripture that the good work that you've begun in us, you will not abandon it until you see it to completion. So Lord, have your way in this place. Have your way in our midst and in our hearts, we pray. And we pray these things in the name of the King who has already come. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with us? Let's worship together. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do.
kickoff's not for four and a half hours and and I, I always want to be really sensitive to the children's workers and um, but if you've listened well this morning and thanks Noah um, one of the things that I love in the text is that this revival that Hezekiah initiates it's not something that he can do solely as the ruler and it's not something that even um, as Kenton Lee preached early this morning, as he said, it's not even something that the paid staff can do. But the Levites, all, it was, the work of God's revival in the kingdom was too big to be left to those in charge. It was the work and the heart of all the people. And as Noah said so well, Hezekiah was just a kid, really. And, you know, those of us in this room with fours and fives and six and sevens and eights and nines in the front of our age. We will always be needed. But I also believe, um, as Noah said, as generations come, revival happens not because that next generation makes us cooler, but because along the way, people with ones and twos and threes in the fronts of their age get uniquely connected with God in a way that the rest of the church looks and goes, oh yeah, that's right. That's what it means to desire first the kingdom and his righteousness. And what this, not just denomination, what this church with a capital C and what this world needs is some folks with ones and twos and threes in the front of their age who have made God first. And if you've been paying attention on social media, there's been a revival breaking out among young people. Thanks be to God this week down at Asbury. It's great. But I just, I just feel like I, I want to give you an opportunity to pray this morning if you need to. Because finally, if you listen well, if, you're, if your life is a wreck this morning, it, it won't be better by starting with the outside and working in. 
Hezekiah, what Hezekiah did right was to say, let me get this relationship with God right first, and then we'll figure out all the rest of the mess that the kingdom has to deal with. But if we don't get this right, all the rest will stay a mess. And it may be this morning that everything's a mess, but you need to start this morning by getting this part right. By reconnecting with God and opening doors that have been shut for way too long or have never been opened. And so I'd invite you to come and pray this morning if you need to, and, and then I'll close in prayer. But let's sing this together. Almighty, we pray uh, today for a spirit of renewal, revival, transformation to be poured out on this place and upon your people. We, we recognize with the Chronicler today that your renewal always includes folks like kings and priests, but it is a work that is not 
done exclusively with those we tend to think of as the designated leaders of God's people. It is done with us all. And so help all of us to be drawn by your spirit to be the people of your renewal in the world. And and I'm so grateful today for folks with fours and fives and six and sevens all the way even into nines that are in this room or online today. Some who've loved you for decades and decades and served you well. But our prayer today out of the text is that some folks with ones and twos and threes in the front of their age, like Hezekiah would be called to be voices of renewal and blessing and they would recognize that the best thing they bring to the body of Christ is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so may that be the call and the cry of their heart today. And God, I pray that it would take place here. And I pray for some folks maybe online or here today who know they need their own life to be renewed and restored, but are maybe starting a little out on the edges when they need to begin like Hezekiah at the heart. So help them to reopen closed doors with you. May your spirit break in. May the restoration of relationship with you lead to restoration with others, with creation, with self. And as you work and renew, we will give you the praise for it is you at work in us. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. May the God of peace himself, May he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful to continue to renew us. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.